Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 6, Chapter 15, The Lost City. The Mongol warriors had disappeared. Rick stepped cautiously from his shelter and looked down into the city. It was breathtaking, a city of gold and alabaster, set in a gigantic natural cup in the mountains. The valley was almost square, hemmed in on four sides by sheer walls of rock that soared in broken crags up to the heights. And right across the center of the square valley was a high man-made wall of white stone that glittered like granite. The opening in which Rick stood was almost a hundred feet above the valley floor. He followed the crude stone steps down, keeping close to the inner wall and watching his footing. At the bottom, the path forked. He debated, then turned left. There was still no sign of the Mongols. The city lay before him. Wide, stone-paved streets branched off in geometric patterns between squat stone buildings of the same white stuff of which the high barrier wall was made. He stood still for a while, watching for some sign of life. But there was none. The city seemed deserted. He went to the nearest building, moving on tiptoe, afraid to break the silence that lay over the city like a tangible thing. It was a square building, flat on top, and it had neither windows nor doors. On its side were inscriptions in a language he could not read. The script was oriental. The stone was rough and cold to the touch. He was conscious that he was sweating. At first he thought it was his nervousness and the eeriness of the place. But then he realized the valley floor was warm. He guessed that volcanic action must lie close under the surface. The wide street beckoned, and he went down to it, between rows of strange squat buildings. Soon he saw that the street led to a central shaft that rose like a golden needle from between the square structures. It looked like gold, but surely nothing so big could be made of that much precious metal. At its tip was a torch, cunningly carved from some red mineral. Rick moved slowly, afraid to let the sound of his footsteps break the crushing silence. He half expected a silent, fearsome horde of Mongols to rise out of the very ground. His imagination peopled the stone buildings with savage beings who watched his every move as he strode down the street. So strong did the feeling become that he turned aside and walked to one of the buildings. This time he found a door and peered in. A face leered at him and his blood turned to ice until he saw it was a mask. Around the walls were stacks of leather armor, helmets, bows. He steeled himself to enter and went into the gloom. Nothing moved. No living thing inhabited the place. He went back into the open air and continued on toward the central spire. As he walked, he kept turning his head from side to side, watching waiting, poised to run at the slightest sign of movement. He reached the tall needle and saw that it was at the very center of the city, on his side of the barrier wall at least. The golden spire rose out of another of the squat buildings, and the walls of the base were embossed with the same metal as the obelisk itself. 
Something about the thing made his skin crawl. He saw the oriental script engraved on the base of the spire, but this time it was a single word. He touched the golden metal, and it was smooth and cold. He took a jackknife from his belt and opened the blade and cut into the metal. It scored easily, and a thin shaving curled off. His eyes widened. It was soft. Soft as... as pure gold? He tucked the metal shaving into his pocket and walked around the base. There were doors in this one, but they were closed, and he was reluctant to open them. He left the central shaft and walked along the deserted streets to the barrier wall. It rose 30 feet into the air, a glittering, unbroken surface. He went along it looking for some opening. He came to the mountainside without finding one. If only he could scale the wall. The Mongols had gone somewhere. They weren't on this side of the wall. Likely the fork in the trail led to the other side, around the opposite end of the wall. His searching eyes discovered a place where a rock had crumbled. He might be able to climb up at the spot where the barrier fitted into the mountainside. He took the first steps, clinging precariously to broken rock. Yes, it could be done. He gritted his teeth and went on up. As he neared the top, something gave under his foot. He made a wild grab for the top and his fingers caught on the ledge. For a second he dangled. Then his groping feet found new footholds and he lifted himself to the top of the barrier. He pulled himself to the flat, wide surface and lay quietly, heart pounding madly. The barrier was ten feet wide at the top. He crawled to the opposite edge and looked down into another city. It was a living city, though, filled with people who were replicas of the Mongol warriors he had seen. It stretched out from the wall in row after row of buildings. A huge two-storied building of white stone was the central point on this side of the wall. Beyond the buildings were gardens, and he caught a glimpse of sheep grazing. At the far side, near the mountain wall, rose a strange flat-topped hill, a plateau of brown rock that was all of 200 feet high. The huge table of rock dominated the part of the city next to the mountain wall. Almost directly below him, a group of Mongols were cooking meat in a pot over live coals. He drew back, afraid of being seen, but no one looked up. At first he thought the entire city was populated by men. Then he saw a good half were women, dressed in the same loose trousers and padded coats that the men wore. Warriors strode by with long, curved knives tucked into their belts and carrying bows. Once he saw a man with a hooded falcon on his wrist. It was like a dream. Rick felt as though he was suspended halfway between earth and sky, looking down on history. For long minutes, his fascinated gaze explored the teeming city, and then he stirred reluctantly and drew himself back from the edge of the wall. The professors and Scotty would have to know about this, if he could ever find them again. In a few moments, he was back on level ground, heading to the valley entrance. He shivered a little now because the sun was rapidly dropping out of sight and the chill of dusk was setting in. Traveling with long, free strides, watching for a sign of the Mongols, he passed through the dead city. The tunnel opening loomed and he hurried in, then slowed his speed because it was very dark inside. His footsteps echoed and re-echoed, and suddenly the short hairs on his neck tightened as he sensed an alien presence in the cave. 
He stopped, holding his breath, and listened tensely. That strange odor was in the air again, a mixture of leather and rancid butter. He turned slowly to look back the way he had come, and a shadow blocked the dim light of the valley entrance, a shadow that moved. His heart came up into his throat and choked him. Moving with frightened caution, he felt his way to the wall of the tunnel. Was it his imagination, or could he hear heavy breathing? His groping hands searched for the cold rock of the wall and touched warm flesh. Rick gave a wild yell and leapt forward, but something struck him from behind, just above the knees, and he went down with a jarring thud. He rolled over, clawing at the thing that held his legs in an iron grip, and his hand found coarse, oily skin. He jerked, and the cave echoed with a cry of pain. Clutching hands found his arms and pinioned them. Other hands lifted him to his feet. He rushed back the way he had come and pulled out of the cave into the daylight once more. Four Mongol warriors held him captive. Rick looked into the greasy, oriental faces with their black, animal-like eyes and knew he could expect no mercy. All right, he said. You've got me. He forced his voice into a semblance of calmness. He did not want these evil little men to know how terrified he was. They let go of his arms and stepped back, drawing curved knives from their leather harnesses. One of them motioned for him to start walking down the path. They fell in around him, two in front and two behind. Rick walked slowly down the trail and turned to the right as a prod came from one of the guards. They were taking him into the occupied part of the city. Why hadn't he been more careful? They must have known he was coming because they had laid in wait in the very niche where he had hidden from the first patrol. But how could they have known? If any of the Mongols had seen him in the dead city around the wall, surely they would have raised a cry. And then there was no more time to wonder, because they rounded a corner of the barrier wall and stepped into the occupied city. And at the sight of him, Mongols came running, yelling to each other. In a moment, a crowd had gathered, hemming him in, an angry crowd, all talking and screaming at once. Rick kept his head high, but there was cold fear within him. They were yelling for his blood. He could hear it in the shrill, angry voices and see it in their fierce yellow faces. The guards pushed their way through the mob, protecting him from hands that reached out to strike him. A foot at a time, shoving back the pressing Mongols, they marched him toward the white central building. The rancid animal stench of the crowd made him feel sick. Sweat streamed down his face and into his eyes, but he didn't dare lift a hand to wipe it away. Then, miraculously, it was quiet. They had gained the sanctuary of the big white building. The guards led him into an enormous hall of white marble-like stone. They marched across the stone floor, their footsteps echoing from the walls. At the end of the chamber he saw a raised dais and a throne of gold and white, guarded by two Mongols who wore crested helmets and carried long spears. His guards marched him to it and stood him directly before the throne, then stepped behind him. They're waiting for the boss to pass sentence on me, Rick thought. He had no doubt of what that sentence would be. There was movement behind him. He half turned his head and saw a Mongol in a yellow robe lighting the torches that stood in cressets along the walls. Then behind the throne the curtains parted. 
Rick sensed that the Mongols behind him were prostrating themselves. The man who came out from behind the throne was over six feet tall, gaunt as a skeleton, and the torchlight flickered and gleamed from a skull as barren and polished as yellow ivory. He was incredibly old. His face was a wrinkled saffron mask from which two eyes blazed, and his lips were a thin straight line. Moving with majestic slowness, he mounted the throne and sat down, arranging the flowing green robes he wore. Then he sat immobile, unmoving, unblinking as a graven image. Rick licked dry lips and lowered his gaze. He couldn't meet that piercing, unwinking stare. From behind him, one of the Mongol guards came forward, bowing until his head almost touched the ground. He spoke in guttural syllables, not raising his eyes to the throne. When he finished, there was silence. To Rick, his own breathing sounded explosively loud. Then the man on the throne spoke, a terse sentence, his eyes on Rick. The Mongol guard bowed again. He backed away, took a torch from the wall, and handed it to one of his fellows. He took Rick's arm roughly and thrust him toward a door that loomed black in the wall at the end of the room. They led him down a passage carved from the rock itself. His heart almost stopped when the faint torchlight showed him grinning skulls set into niches in the rock walls. For a full two minutes they pushed on into the dark passage. Then they rounded a corner and he saw a faint glow of light. In a moment they walked into a high ceiling room that evidently had been a natural cave. He blinked in the sudden light of myriad torches. Then, as his eyes became accustomed to the glow, he let out a hoarse cry. There, in a barred niche on the opposite side, were three men. He pulled away from his guards and ran to them. Scotty, Weiss, and Zircon. For a heartbeat, the three stared at him, and he at them. Then Scotty finally broke the silence. Deaf break, kid. We were hoping they wouldn't get you. Rick found his own voice. But how? Later. Better watch those gooks behind you. Rick whirled. The knives were out again, and four pairs of eyes were on him, waiting for the slightest move toward escape. One of the guards went to the niche and pulled out the iron rods that held the door closed. He motioned Rick inside. As Rick walked in to join his three friends, he tasted the bitterness of despair. With all four of them imprisoned, there would be no means of rescue. Hope was a dead thing now. The barred door clanged shut behind him. Two of the Mongols took up stations in the room outside, and the other two left. Are you all right, Rick? Professor Weiss asked anxiously. Of course he is. Zircon tried to sound reassuring. Scotty put an arm around his shoulders. How'd they get you? Rick outlined his story quickly and then asked, what happened? I was hoping... That we were still free? Zircon smiled grimly. I wish we were, but we blundered right into their hands. It was that blasted yak, Scotty said unhappily. We followed the trail he pointed out, and we got to the red rock all right. Then a hunk of rock fell and hit the yak, and he got scared and ran, with us right after him. He got trapped in that little pocket right below the entrance. Scotty saw the opening of the rock, Julius Weiss added. 
We decided to look into it. It was pure curiosity. I wish I hadn't seen it, Scotty said. We went in and came out in the city. The professors were all excited, of course. I had a hunch we ought to beat it, but it seemed like too good a chance to miss, especially since the place looked deserted. We went down and found that golden tomb. Only while we were prowling around, a bunch of those yellow monkeys came up behind us. They hit us like a charging backfield. I didn't even have a chance to get my rifle up and cocked. They took us without a struggle, Zircon added. Before we knew they were even there, they were swarming over us like ants. I think they saw us as we came through the tunnel, Julius Wise said. I'm sure they have had us under surveillance for days. Rick looked at their prison. There was a corner of the cavern-like room. A network of iron bars rose from floor to ceiling and wall to wall. There was no furniture. Well, now what? he asked. Before anybody could answer, Scotty held up his hand. I hear footsteps. Somebody's coming. Instantly, all of them were watching the dark opening across the room that marked the passageway. Outside the barred cage, the guards came to attention, faces toward the passage. The footsteps echoed hollowly in the silence, the footsteps of only one man. Rick blinked his eyes a couple of times because the uncertain torchlight made him sure he had seen something white just beyond the rim of light. Then the four of them gasped simultaneously as into the torchlit room, smiling, immaculate in white linens, a mentholated tissue to his nose, stepped Hendrik von Groot. Chapter 16. Conway Shows His Hand It was von Groot who broke the shock silence. He came across the room, leaned against the bars, and said cordially, Gentlemen, I welcome you to the Valley of the Golden Tomb. Sirkhan spoke first. I'd enjoy getting my hands on you, my friend. Von Groot smiled. Please don't make the mistake of trying it, Professor Zirkon. Subotai, he indicated the younger of the two Mongol guards, would be most happy to plant his knife between your ribs. In fact, you have me to thank that you weren't killed outright. Explain yourself, Weiss demanded harshly. Of course, you met Shep Noyan in the throne room, but for my intervention he would have had you executed at once. However, I persuaded him that we had to delay the happy moment for a while until I had an opportunity to find out just how much you've discovered. About what? Rick asked. Van Groot chuckled. Am I to gather you have no idea why so many things have been happening to your expedition? No idea at all, I said tiredly. I suppose it's too much to ask for an explanation. Not at all, Van Groot replied smoothly. Out of the circumstances, I believe a partial explanation might amuse you. Rick and his friends pressed close to the bars to hear what the man had to say. Van Groot crumpled a tissue and tossed it aside. You were unfortunate enough to enter the forbidden part of the city. Entering it all was bad enough, but coming through the tomb area, he shrugged. Chepnoyan was quite annoyed and quite definite about your punishment. By the forbidden part. Zirkhan asked. I take it you mean the deserted part beyond the wall? Exactly. 
When you entered that portion of the city, you violated the tomb of the Genghis Khan. Rick's eyes widened. That was why the place had been deserted, why the golden spire dominated that entire part of the city. That golden monument must be the tomb, said Rick. The golden tomb of the great Khan, Van Groot agreed. What is ridiculous? Weiss exploded. Why, the Khan was buried in... in... He stopped suddenly. You see, Van Groot smiled, the learned professor here just recalled that no one has ever discovered the burial place of the Khan. According to legend, he was buried in Shansu province in China. Actually, one of his legions brought his body here and built this city. The people here are descendants of his warriors. They guard his tomb against the day when he will return. But you, how did you fit into all this? Zircon demanded. <laughs> Mangroup chuckled. You're looking at the true messenger of the great Khan. The traveler stared. He's insane, Weiss muttered. Don't misunderstand. That is what they believe I am. I know better, of course. You see, I was in China some time ago and got into a bit of difficulty with the authorities. I had to leave in rather a bit of a hurry. I borrowed a Chinese military plane, well, without permission, and started for the border of India. However, the gas tanks were not quite full. He produced another tissue and sniffed delicately. Very careless of me. I should have stolen one with full tanks. At any rate, I passed over the city just as I was running out of fuel. It was a choice of crashing or bailing out, so I decided to jump while near civilization, even though I didn't know the nature of the place. These people had never seen a plane before, much less a man in a parachute. I sized up the situation, and it wasn't hard to convince them I was a messenger sent to tell of the Khan's second coming. Incredible. Zircon muttered. Yeah, but quite true. I knew a smattering of the Mongol tongue, so it was a simple matter. I'm rather proud of my quick thinking. They accepted me without reservation. Now I can come and go as I please, and they take orders from me. I'm careful not to abuse my power, however, and I'm careful to show proper deference to the tomb whenever I come. Rick asked a question, even though he knew what the answer would be. Is your real name Conway? Of course it is. Van Groot smiled at him. You got that name from Meekin, I presume. He never was very dependable, was he? Witness his failures in such a simple matter as wrecking your equipment. That brings us to the crux of the matter, Zircon bellowed. Why have you tried to block us at every step? You had our equipment stolen in Bombay and... Van Groot interrupted. The matter may have ended there had it not been for your two eager young men and the Hindu boy. Your recovery of the equipment almost put a dent in my plans. How did you happen to have your hirelings at the dock waiting for us? Weiss asked. Surely you couldn't have known that Meekin had failed. I knew Meekin had failed when you wired for replacements, Van Groot explained. I anticipated such a failure so I had a clerk at the electronic equipment house watching for such a message. It was ridiculously easy. There was no other place where you could have picked up replacement parts. Then, when you recovered the equipment, I was a bit discouraged, but you played into my hands by asking me to get your maps. I merely substituted others 
with my own choice of a route marked in. It would have taken you to the Tengi Boo had you followed it, although in a rather roundabout way. And you hired Samid and told him to bulldoze his way into being hired by us too, right? Scotty stated. And you bribed the frontier official, Rick added. True to both statements, Van Grew smiled. I beat you to the frontier by several days by flying to Nepal. Then I came here and arranged to have Mongol patrols keep track of you. They did very well until you got separated. We lost Mr. Brandt for a while, but I had Supatai and three men wait in the entrance passage in case he blundered into the valley. As it happened, they caught him going out after he'd already explored a bit. He addressed Rick directly. You must have come in while your friends were being ushered to Chepnoyan by the first patrol. Surely others must know of this valley, Weiss said. I'm happy to say you're wrong on that, Van Groot told him. We're far off the beaten trail here, in a country where nobody ever comes. There's nothing to bring Tibetans here, and the Mongols are careful not to be seen when they venture out. They permitted you to see them on my orders, purely as a means of intimidation. As for the outside world, we're away from air routes and highways. There are no high mountains of the kind that attract travelers here. Nope, I'm afraid we are the only white men who know about the valley. His voice sharpened. I regret that you will not enjoy the knowledge for long, though, but your fate is on your own heads, gentlemen. It's not my plan that you should find this place. I merely tried to keep you away from it. After my attempts on the equipment had failed, I decided to let you come ahead, my route of my choice. But that Hindu boy spoiled things again. I trust Samid has wrung his neck by now. All this trouble to keep us away from here is past belief, Weiss declared. If I know men of your type, you must hope to gain substantially. Where is your profit to come from? Well, that tomb is made of gold, Rick reminded Weiss. True, Van Groot agreed, but that's not the reason. Then what is it? Zircon demanded. Van Groot turned and signaled to the Mongol warrior Subatai. The two guards took up stations again at the door. I'm afraid that is the one thing you will never know. In fact, my only reason for talking with you now is to see if you did know. He bowed and walked into the darkness. The four men looked at each other. Then Rick sat down on the rocky floor of their cell. Somebody pinch me, he said. You're awake, all right, Scotty told him, and he sat down and crossed his legs. The scientist joined the boys on the floor, and Zircon sighed. I'm sorry you blundered into the city, Rick. You were our only hope. It's like a dream, Rick said. I don't believe any of it. His voice rose a little. Or are we all crazy? Easy there, Scotty said, hand on Rick's arm. We're sane enough. Everything Van Groot said makes sense. Yeah, Weiss agreed. Even the inscriptions on the tomb bear him out. I didn't guess the true story, although I didn't notice that the word on the base of the monument read Temujin. What does that mean? Scotty asked. Temujin was the name of the man usually known as the Genghis Khan, Weiss explained. Roughly, Khan means leader or ruler. Genghis Khan is a title that means ruler of all men. 
This city would be a great archaeological find, Zircon said gloomily, if we had a chance to report it. Rick looked at the stalwart Mongols stationed outside the door and remembered how the mob in the city had yelled. He knew, and he knew the others knew, that the Mongols would never let them leave. They would die here for violating the tomb of a man dead for centuries. All that Van Groot had said went through his mind. Many points in the mystery had been cleared, except the biggest one. What was the man's motive? Why had he wanted to keep them away from here? As Weiss had said, how was he going to profit? He tried to think of ways to escape, of any sources of help. Chada, he exclaimed. He's still free. Unless some me just tossed him over a cliff, Scotty said unhappily. Julius, Zircon suggested. Tell us about the Genghis Khan. Weiss demurred at first, and then he realized that the big scientist only sought for something to keep their minds occupied, and he began. Temujin, whose title was Genghis Khan, was the greatest conqueror the world has ever known. By comparison, Alexander, Napoleon, Hitler, as Scotty would say, were pikers. The professor's soft voice went on, detailing the fantastic story of the Khan, and little by little the others forgot their predicament, lost in the spell of the tale. He told of the poor Mongol tribesmen who had gathered men around him as a magnet draws iron. He ruled them with a hand of steel and taught them his military genius. He took the nomadic Mongol peoples and forced them into a single nation of warriors whose sole business was war. Then, about the end of the 12th century, the horsemen of the Khan rode forth in great divisions and swept across the known earth like a flame that seared all it touched. He took India and all the rest of Asia. They swept into Asia Minor, even into Western Europe, and as they went, the fierce, leather-armored horsemen with their horsetail standards set up a civilization of their own. Nothing could stop them. They used infiltration tactics copied by the Panzer divisions centuries later. They used fifth columnists to penetrate the Great Wall of China and overrun Cathay. They even set up the first Pony Express to keep communications going within the Khan's great empire. At the head of this mighty force sat Temujin, the Genghis Khan, the illiterate, cruel genius who measured his campaigns by degrees of longitude rather than by mere nations. The great Khan died in his 72nd year, and his warriors took his body to the south, killing every living thing they met on the march so that his burial place would never be known. It was thought that he had been buried in China. Now we know the truth, and I do not doubt it because there is proof around us. The name on the tomb, the names of the warriors here. Chep Noyan, the old man who was lord of the city, was the name of one of the great marshals of the Khan. Subutai was the name of another division leader. The professor pointed to the Mongol outside their door. And there was Subutai, doubtless a direct descendant of that great warrior who lived eight centuries ago. Strange that they should have come to Tibet to find a burial place, Sirkan commented. Not that strange. They overran India. In fact, it was a descendant of the Mongol rulers, Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal. My theory is that one of the Khan's divisions came into Tibet and found this valley on their way to India. They would have noted it, 
A warm-footed place of this sort is strange in Tibet, due to volcanic activity close under the surface, I'm sure. Why do you suppose it hasn't been discovered? Scotty asked. There's no reason for men to come here, Weiss replied. There are no villages around, nothing but rock and more rock. It isn't even on a route between civilized points. I guess that's why no planes have spotted it, Rick said. Weiss nodded. The place was safe, barring an odd expedition like this. I was wondering, Scotty mused, why there weren't any guards at the tomb. They evidently think it's pretty valuable. We looked inside and no one disturbed us until the patrol came. I imagine they've never felt the need for guards, Sirkan replied. The very existence of the city was unknown. There'd be no point in guarding it against themselves. In fact, the entire populated part of the city could be considered a guard. I wonder what they'll think at Spindrift on the 10th when they get no answer, Rick said gloomily. They'll keep trying, Sirkan replied. Then they'll send out a search party. After a while, another expedition will come. There'll be a moon relay. You can be sure of it, no matter what happens to us. And the city will be found, Weiss added. It is inevitable. Not that it'll matter so much to us, Scotty remarked. They fell silent after his gloomy prediction, and presently they picked spots on the hard floor and curled up to rest as best they could and wait for day. Who knew what it would bring? Chapter 17 They Can Eat Stone Rick couldn't believe that he had slept, but it was the sound of a sword rattling against the cell bars that woke him. Scotty, Weiss, and Zircon were sitting up, rubbing their aching joints. The guard, Subatai, was opening the cell door. Dawn light flooded the outer room from holes in the rock ceiling. The Mongols motioned to them and stood aside. They filed out, and other guards fell in behind them. Subutai took the lead, his weapon in hand. He led them down the corridor through which Rick had been brought the night before, turned the corner, and headed toward the throne room. As they mounted the stairs, clear daylight almost blinded them and made them blink. They were in the throne room, walking toward the aged figure of the leader, Chap Noyan. Van Groot stood beside the old Mongol, immaculate as ever, a methylated tissue in his hand. And piled before the throne were many crates. Their equipment. The aged warrior made no move of recognition, but Van Groot said, Good morning, gentlemen. I trust you spent a pleasant night. As you see, I have arranged for your equipment to be brought here. Weiss and Zircon looked at it hopelessly. Why did you bother? the little scientist asked. Van Groot sniffed as one of the warriors moved too close to him. Might have been embarrassing had a later search party found these things, he explained. Of course, it was only a remarkable coincidence that enabled you to stumble into the city at all, so we have no real fear that anybody else will come here. Chep Noyan leaned forward on his throne and began to speak. Weiss translated under his breath. We have desecrated the tomb. We must suffer, he says. Rick, Scotty, and Zircon moved closer to each other. Now he seems to be calling upon the soul of Genghis Khan to witness his wisdom in dealing with the violators of the tomb, Weiss went on. 
I cannot understand all of this. It is a sort of ritual prayer or speech. Watching the face of Chep Noyan, Rick knew that there was no such thing as mercy in his code. If anything was to be done, it had to be done now. He looked about at the guards, and then at Subutai, and at another young warrior standing close by their ruler. Every door was barred. There was no chance to make a break. He stared at Van Groot, who seemed as puzzled as Weiss at the tirade issuing from the ruler's lips. If only Van Groot did not have such a hold over these superstitious people, he groaned. Then he started suddenly. They were superstitious. Van Groot had proved that by palming off his tail on them. If they believed one tail, why not another? He moved closer to Weiss and looked at the throne to see if Chepnoyan's eyes were upon them. The aged man's eyes were raised to the heavens as he uttered the imploring tones of his prayer. Subutai and the other guards had their eyes cast to the floor in reverence. Professor, Rick whispered, could we sell this guy a story about ourselves? Scotty and Zircon moved closer. Like Van Groot did, you mean? Scotty asked softly. Yeah. Tell them we're messengers from the Khan, too, and have delayed identifying ourselves until now to see if they would recognize the signs that our kind bring with us. Zircon's eyes widened at the boldness of the idea. Weiss bit his lip. How, Rick? Rick looked up to see Van Groot looking at them suspiciously. Then Chep Noyan's eyes fell upon them. Before he could speak, Weiss was spouting forth a stream of excited Mongol pointing to the sky and pounding his chest. A startled look came into Chepnoyan's eyes, and when Van Groot noticed the reaction and realized what Weiss was saying, he leapt to the ruler's side and began haranguing him from the other side. But Chepnoyan growled at the man and turned his eyes back toward Rick and his friends. My gosh, I think he's going for it, Scotty whispered. Rick did not wait for skepticism to set in. He ran to the pile of equipment and began searching through it for a square black case, lighter than the rest. It was right on top. His heart gave a leap as he saw that nothing had happened to his speed graphic. Chepnoyan's eyes were on him now, and Rick knew he had broken the spell of Weiss's words. Tell him I'll capture his soul in this little box, Rick said excitedly. He slipped in a cut film holder, set the shutter, and hurriedly guessed at the focus. Guards were rushing toward him. He lifted the camera to his cheek and sighted through the viewfinder and clicked the shutter. Subutai reached for him, his dagger in the other hand. Rick jerked away. Tell him, he shouted desperately. Tell him. Weiss spoke rapidly. Chepnoyan shouted at the guards and they let Rick go reluctantly. Weiss translated as Chepnoyan spoke. He does not believe you, but he's a reasonable man, he says. How long will it take to develop? Just a few minutes, and I'll need water. Wise passed on the information, and a guard was sent from the room. Rick set up his black velvet hood on its wire frame. Then he took the developing pans and set them on the floor and filled them with the bottled, ready-mixed developer and the fixative he had brought. When the guards came back with water, he filled the third pan from the gourd and then placed the tent of black velvet over it. He knelt and thrust his arms through the rubber wristbands. It was strange to be kneeling, working with groping hands, watching the faces of Chepnoya and the guards in Van Groot while his fingers worked frantically. He took the cut film from the holder and plunged it into the developer, 
and then began agitating it. He was the center of all eyes, fearful eyes. His friends were afraid the trick wouldn't work. Van Groot was afraid it would work. The Mongols were afraid because here was magic they didn't understand. Subutai toyed with his knife and his eyes on Rick were cold and black with that strange animal glint in them. Sweat stood out on Rick's face and trickled down his nose. He took the film from the developer and put it in the fixative, almost dropping it. To the watchers, he seemed to be kneeling motionless. They couldn't see his hands working. The film would be a negative, of course, but maybe that was good. Chepnoyan would see himself as a white image in a frame of mottled grays and blacks, for the Mongol was darker in color than the white stone around him, and the negative was reversed. Rick's train of thought broke off, and he took the film from the stopper and swished it in water. It wasn't a good job of developing, but it would serve. Now, he shouted, and pulled his arm free, and thrust the velvet tent aside. He ran to the throne and held the negative up before the Mongol's eyes, so he could see through it, and see that his soul had been captured. The Mongol shrugged. Van Groot hit a smile. Rick turned white. The film was a solid, formless gray. Chepnoyan's face darkened with anger. He made a disdainful gesture and spoke to Van Groot, and the man answered briefly. Rick turned to his friends. It's fogged. I don't get it. It can't be. The camera's new. The film was new. Suddenly, Zircon let out a great roar. I've got it. I know why it's fogged. Radioactivity. I knew there was something familiar about the rock where we camped last night. It was pitch blend. Radium and uranium ore. Rick, radioactivity fogged your film. It must be enormously high content ore. He leveled a finger at Van Groot. That's why you wanted to keep us away. You've discovered a big deposit of pitch blend. You needed time to make arrangements to develop it. Isn't that what you were doing in Bombay? Van Groot's smile was gone now. Yeah, he said. I was working out the details, trying to get mineral rights from the Tibetan government. I would have succeeded, too. I will succeed. Knowing about it will do you no good, though, my friends. And then Chep Noyan spoke. Rick saw Weiss's brows lift slowly. It was evident that the ruler's words amazed him. We are not to be executed. As one, the party relaxed. But what was their fate to be? Rick could see that Van Groot was as much interested as they were, and as Chep Noyan informed them of their fate, he could see that it did not meet the dapper man's approval. We are going to be placed on the hill of a thousand repentant ancestors, Weiss went on following the ruler's words. It's a high plateau beyond this building. The reason for the punishment is that, as white men, we may have souls of a very different sort. He quoted the Mongol word for word now. No food, no water will be given to the prisoners. If they are immortal, they can eat stone. If not, they will starve and die, and their blood will not stain the valley of the golden tomb. When he finished the pronouncement, Chepnoyan rose without another word and parted the draperies behind his throne, signifying that the audience was ended. But Van Groot moved quickly to his side, and Rick could see that he was pleading with the ruler about something. 
Rick looked at his friends. It was a relief to know they were not to be killed outright, but was their punishment on the plateau to be any more pleasant than immediate death? He remembered the barrenness of the plateau he had seen. It towered above the city, and on its height a man would be at the mercy of the cutting winds and the rains that swept across the Tibetan peaks, and without food. Suddenly there was a command from the throne. Chep Noyan had pushed Van Groot aside and was parting the draperies again. He pointed to the prisoners and spoke a word in Mongol. The guards advanced toward them, and with a wave of their flat swords signified that the prisoners were to start marching. Rick saw Van Groot's face as he turned to go, and it was white with rage. He turned his head to follow the line of the man's eyes. The rest of the guards were picking up the electronic equipment and carrying it after the party. They were to be placed on the plateau with all their belongings. Van Groot's fists clenched, and in two bounds he was beside the guards who were removing the equipment. He forced a smile and reached for one of the boxes. Rick understood his action when he recognized the box as the one that contained the storage batteries. The guards paid no attention to Van Groot's movements, and as Rick was pushed out of the throne room, he saw the man carrying the batteries out another entrance. He gave the matter no further thought for the moment. The guards' prodding swords made anything but moving an impossibility. The prisoners soon found themselves in a courtyard. Every eye in the party went up to the high plateau and traveled up. The plateau was 200 feet high, sheer on all sides, and with a flat oblong top about 100 feet long and 50 feet wide. Rick wondered how they would get up there with all the equipment. But there was no more chance to survey their prison. The swords prodded again, and they marched across the wide grounds. As they approached the rocky wall of the hill, he saw what appeared to be a tunnel opening in the base. It was blocked by a square stone. The guards halted them, and two men began to push aside the square rock. Behind the prisoners, other warriors arrived with their equipment. The rock moved slowly, and the opening loomed dark. The air was musty, as though it had been closed for centuries. As the guards motioned them inside, Rick wondered how the place had gotten its name. A few yards inside, stone steps wound upward through the solid rock. Such a mammoth job of carving would have amazed Rick under other circumstances, but he gave it no thought as they began the long climb. The Mongols were tireless, and though Weiss was soon breathing hard, they ignored Zircon's plea to let the little professor rest and prodded the party on. They climbed endlessly through the darkness, relieved only by a torch in the hands of Subatai, who led the way. Rick and Scotty waited until the procession had strung out a bit and then moved to Weiss's side and took his arms to help him up the stairs. It seemed as if a whole day had passed when they finally came to an opening directly above their heads and saw blue sky. One of the guards had moved levers that lifted a circle of stone from an entrance leading out directly to the flat top of the plateau. He growled at them and they scrambled through the opening. Julius Weiss collapsed in a heap at the feet of the warrior and the others lifted him and dragged him to one side. The guards lifted the electronic equipment through the hole in the plateau top and piled it around the prisoners. Subutai then ordered his men down the stairs again. They saw his cruel face disappear and saw the lid swing shut. It dropped with a thump into the hole, and Rick saw that it was flush with the surface of the plateau. It would be impossible to pry that lid up. 
They hurry to the rim of their prison and look straight down. A crowd of Mongols had gathered about the base and were looking up, chattering excitedly. Around them, the high Tibetan mountains rose, crouching like glacial sentinels. There was no way off the hill of a thousand repentant ancestors, except through death.